Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. I'm completely surrounded by my stuff. Here on my right is my great library of RPGs and my grognard files. Here on my left is the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Monroe. I'll uh, just give it a tap. Ah yes, the eternal champion has appeared as Margiana from the golden voyage of Sinbad. That's great because whenever people ask me who she is, I always say, you know, the actress in Sinbad. Tom Baker. It's the same with the game under discussion for this grog pod. What's role playing? Well, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. You've heard of that, haven't you? We're going back to basics this time. Basic Dungeons and Dragons, which is for so many people the first game that they played and introduced them to the hobby. If you've been following us, you'll know that we started with RuneQuest and Traveller and due to a prime directive, we were prevented from playing Advanced Dungeons and Dragons by our friend Simon, who had the Dungeon Master's Guide and was the DM, which meant that we couldn't buy the game, and we were subject to his esoteric munificence. We never knew when we were going to play, and it was always slightly torturous when we did. You can hear all about our misadventures in AD&D in the four-part episode six. The original Dungeons and Dragons, the foundational game, made an impact on the wargaming hobby scene and the science fiction convention circuit and was hot amongst the college students, but didn't break through to the younger, more generic audience until J. Eric Holmes offered to rewrite the original Gygax and Arneson version to make it more understandable. He was a neurosurgeon and an author his version of the rules, which was based on the first set of rules and the Greyhawk supplement, was an intellectual exercise, which proved to be a bestseller. In his words, he aimed for maximum availability and minimum difficulty. The idea was to take players through the first three levels of play so they would be ready to graduate to the more oblique original game. By the end of 1978, it was selling 4,000 copies a month, Prior to that, TSR were lucky to sell as many in a whole year. Meanwhile, Advanced D&D was being developed by Gygax to act as a definitive version of the game with a very prescriptive idea of what was right and wrong. It was less open-ended than Holmes's basic version so that it had more control over how things could be done. The Monster Manual was published in 1977 AD&D's Player's Handbook in 1978, The Dungeon Master's Guide in 1979, and finally, Deities and Demigods in 1980. During this time, TSR recruited full-time staffers to its team, including Tom Moldvay, who developed the second edition of Basic D&D, this time making it a distinctive alternative to the advanced version. He based it on Holmes's rules, but simplified it further. More important than any specific mechanic, 
It was the attitude that was expressed in the rule book which is responsible for its revival over the past couple of decades. It was accompanied by an expert set which was compiled by David Zeb Cook, which took characters from the 4th to the 14th level. In the introduction, Moldvay says, The purpose of these rules is to provide guidelines that enable you to play and have fun, so don't feel absolutely bound by them. The basic and expert rules were released as an open license, SRD, by Wizards of the Coast at the turn of the century. There have been a number of games since that have been built upon the chasse of those original rules, from Osric to The Lamentations of the Flame Princess, Labyrinth Lord and Swords and Wizardry, for gold and glory to the various hacks such as Black Hack and White Hack, and most recently there's been the Old School Essentials from Necrotic Gnome, which is probably the most sympathetic representation of the BX rules as they've become to be known. Players have embraced their simplicity, the fun of the unpredictable nature of the dice, the fluidity of the rules and the lethality. There's something magical about how they look and feel. There's a sense of nostalgia and there's nothing wrong with that. When it came to Dungeons and Dragons, there was only one commentator that we would turn to, Lewis Pulsifer, who was a regular contributor to White Dwarf. I talked to him about his formative years in the hobby, what he's up to nowadays, and of course talk about some of his D&D philosophy that we used to debate and argue over 40 years ago. Blythe joins me as we recall our various attempts to recruit new players and the creation of a school club with three members, including us, and how we played basic D&D in our lunchtimes for a year. Ralph Lovegrove from the Fictoplasm podcast provides his first, last and everything. The first game he played, the last he played, and the game that means everything to him. Followed by the highlight of the rules of Dungeons and Dragons with our resident rules lawyer, Blythe. I'll be back at the end to tell you what's coming in part two of the episode, until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Welcome to Open Box, the part of the podcast where we look backwards to look forwards, how our games of the past have influenced our gaming today. And I am delighted today to be joined by games designer extraordinaire, commentator extraordinaire, Lou Pulsifer, uh, coming live from Florida. Hello there, Lou. Hello, Dirk. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to have you. If you'd have said to me 40 years ago I'd be speaking to Luke Pulsifer, I wouldn't have believed you because you're a bit of a folk hero. Back when I was playing at the age of 12, we used to uh, enjoy reading your articles in uh, White Dwarf and uh, arguing over them. Yes, and and to tell something funny, you, you know who Mark Miller is. He designed Traveller and many, many other games. Yes, yes, of course. He wrote to me through uh, LinkedIn a, a year or two ago and said, uh, I must be really old because he could remember reading my articles when he was a young man. And I had to disappoint him that I'm actually a year or two younger than he is. <laughs> when you started those articles, you must have been very young then. So when was, when was that? I was born in 1951. I lived in England from 76 to 79. And that's when I really got into doing that sort of thing. So I was in my late 20s. And how did you come to uh, meet the guys uh, involved in Games Workshop? Because that would be fairly early then, wouldn't it? So um, 
the yes, early they were down there in their one shop and they worked upstairs and there was a shop downstairs. But I confess I have no recollection of how I met them. I suspect it was because of Albi Fiore. Uh, I had been writing articles for Games Magazine, and he was the editor, and he probably introduced me to them. Yes, because Albi was uh, very much involved in the early years of uh, White Dwarf, wasn't he? He did quite a lot of the editorial work. Yes, yeah. and wrote some articles. Yes. So the, the question that we always ask is how did you get into uh, role-playing and gaming in general? So have you been gaming forever? I remember playing Candyland when I was a little kid and when, when I didn't realize it was all random. You know, if you're young enough, that happens. But I quickly graduated, graduated to things like Stratego and Conflict, which I think I got when I was about 10, which was one of the first commercial war games. Stratego, of course, dates back to 1909 as La Talk and then Post-war, a Dutchman uh, slightly modified the game, and that was Stratego. So these are all really old games. And, of course, Stratego was quite different from Conflict. Conflict was a game where you still rolled dice to see how you move. And so it was all about uh, arranging yourself. So if you rolled doubles so that you got another roll, you would be able to kill enemy pieces. So it wasn't really a, a, a great game, but uh, Broadsides was another one. And when I was 12... And at that time, I was looking for games that were intellectual, but were not puzzles. Chess is a puzzle because it's perfect information. And I also had a strong interest in history, and I ran across Avalon Hill games. I got Tactics 2, Stalingrad, and Africa Corps. And that's what occupied me while I was a teenager, I suppose you could say. I did design my own games. I designed or wrote rules for playing with toy soldiers where you throw, you've got a tank and you throw some at the enemy tank to see if you hit it and that kind of thing. Um, I tried to formalize that. And I remember making a space war game that used hidden movement. But of course, there was no way to do hidden movement. But I was playing solitaire, so it was okay. I just pretended it was hidden. And I played that one a lot. It was a simple game, but I enjoyed it. At age 18, I got diplomacy. And then I moved into diplomacy, which is a game without any overt chance, but has a lot of uncertainty because of the seven players and because of the simultaneous movement and adjudication. So that occupied me when I was in college. And I didn't run on to Dungeons and Dragons. Well, I ran into Dungeons and Dragons once in my own little village I was living in. And I saw that there were a lot of dice. And at the time I said, I hate dice games. So I was not interested. But in 1975, which isn't that much later, at a convention, we played all night sitting in a camper van, played Dungeons and Dragons. And after that, that's what I was into. So Dungeons and Dragons is my favorite game or has been my favorite game. I always say now my favorite game is a game of designing games. But at that time, I never thought of game design as, as something where you could actually get paid and so on and so forth. It was more or less a hobby. I had designed a large number of diplomacy variants, probably still more than anyone else has. But uh, those were not uh, money-making. I did talk once with the uh, gent who published diplomacy, which is before Avalon Hill. It was called a little company called Games Research. But nothing came of that. Uh, diplomacy uh, turns up again and again when I'm speaking from people from that era in the 70s as a way of uh, connecting uh, people. We all played by mail. And of course, the game could take three years when you were playing by mail, so you had to have a certain amount of persistence. But there were lots of people and lots of little magazines, and I published my little magazine, Blood and Iron, and another one called Ragnarok. And, you know, I had my mimeograph machine, and I'd turn the crank, and it would 
print out the pages one page at a time, real old fashioned stuff. But it worked at the time, you know, it was the best way to do it. Photocopying was very expensive and there just wasn't anything else. There was no World Wide Web or anything like that, of course. And uh, you had an academic interest in uh, military history and diplomacy as well, didn't you? So did that go hand in hand? When I went to college, I started as a physics major, but physics was boring. (laughs) It had nothing to do with people. So I finally bailed out of that into history, which was my other major interest. I ended up with a PhD in history, military and, and diplomatic history. And the PhD was the reason why I went to England and lived there for three years, because I was researching uh, aircraft in the Royal Navy in World War One. Ah, right. Okay. That had to be in London, pretty much. And I looked for uh, players there, and I remember playing Dungeons and Dragons with various people. But uh, there were a couple of game shops in town. I put up a notice on the the bulletin board of one of them, and somebody from University of London got in touch with me and said, "Well, I know some people who need to know how to play Dungeons and Dragons. Do you want to do it?" I said, "Yeah." Well, he got sent down. In other words, moved to another place far away. But one of his friends got in touch with me. So one day I walked down to the University of London and had four people there to teach the game to, two guys and two women. And in the end, I married one of the women. One of the guys married my wife's best friend. And the other two who were not romantically attached at the time ended up getting married. And we're all still married today. So I always use that as an example of the power of the social part of Dungeons and Dragons. You can't do better than that. No, to create lasting relationships, absolutely. That's, that's a great story. So while I was in London, I somehow got in touch with Albie. I don't recall how. And ultimately with Graham Levin, who ran, ran that game shop and also was involved uh, as an agent. And my first game was, uh, well, I guess Diplomacy Games and Variants, which Graham published. And then uh, Swords and Wizardry, which was a development and variation of uh, Stratego, but a fantasy. And that was published by H.P. Gibson's. So those were the the first games that were published commercially. And somewhere along the line, of course, I met the Games Workshop guys and was writing stuff for White Dwarf and submitted some monsters one day. And they said, oh, can we use these in the Fiend Folio? Because they were creating the Fiend Folio for TSR at the time they were TSR's agent. And I said, sure. And that's how I got several monsters into the Fiend Folio, including the elemental princes of evil who seem to have taken on a life of their own. They actually have a uh, entry in Wikipedia, Archomental. As so many people have, uh, they've been redone for each version of Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, that must uh, that must uh, be, feel very rewarding that that work that he did uh, way back then. He's still alive now. Yes, well, I'm I I feel blessed that people still remember from me writing all those articles back then, like you do, and the reaction I tend to get from people. Oh, wow, yeah, I really like those articles. You know, that's great. That's what somebody wants to hear. Uh, it's like I remember once at uh, the Britannia tournament at, at WBC, World Board Gaming Championships, one guy was who had won the tournament in the past, he was sitting, look, standing looking at the board. The other players had gone out for a break, and I was some distance away, and suddenly says, I love this game, and there's nothing better in game design than that. I'm going to look in a bit more detail at some of those uh, high points uh, in your career in gaming, but just to talk about bringing you up to date, are, are you still gaming? Are you still involved in uh, gaming? Because I know that you have you make contributions to EM World and you have your own uh, YouTube channel, don't you? 
Yes, uh, it's called game design. And actually, I didn't realize it was happening, but it's not listed under Lou Pulsifer. It's listed under game design. But I've been posting there a long time. There's about 300 videos. It's, it's not something that many people know about. It's obscure, but I think it's a treasure trove for people who are wanting to design games. And I can do that for free nowadays because of Patreon. Otherwise, I would have had to quit. But uh, most of the videos I make go into courses on Udemy.com and Skillshare.com. So what kind of topics do you deal with uh, on those uh, videos in case people want to go and uh, find them? They are almost entirely about game design of various sorts. There's an introduction. There's a very large two-part learning game design course. There's one about uh, RPG, Adventures and Levels is what it's called. Yeah, Adventures and Levels both RPG and video games, because formerly I was much more into video games, I suppose, than than I have been nowadays. When I was teaching, I taught mostly computer networking, and then toward the end, before I retired, I taught video game development. And so I kept up with video games pretty well. Uh, Nowadays, not so much, although the game that I mostly actually play is a stupid old video game from 2004, Empire Deluxe Enhanced Edition, and I just keep playing that and modifying it and so on and so forth. And, you know, the advantage of video games is you can play a little bit here and stop, a little bit there and stop. Of course, nowadays, I am locked down because I'm in Florida where the pandemic is bad. And I'm of an age and have diabetes that I am vulnerable. So I haven't played any games with anybody else since, I don't know, February. Right. And so do you have an active group that you're a part of under normal well, circumstances? there are college groups here and uh, a group of townspeople, but none of them are meeting now. And one of the reasons why we live in Gainesville is it has the enormous University of Florida, 52,000 students, and the sixth largest community college in the country, which is like 16,000 students. So there's a lot of students there. Unfortunately, the clubs tend to be uh, fragile. They come and go. So there'll be a club with 20 people meeting one day, and a year or two later, they're not even in existence anymore. So I have not developed uh, a group here that like would come to my house and play. I had that in uh, North Carolina, and I also went to NC State for many years where uh, I had a regular group of people who were willing to sit down and play my games, which is very nice. Um, but that was a 50-mile drive each way. So, And then all of those people graduated, and in the end, we decided to move down here for various reasons. Hey, I, you said that. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons uh, remains your favourite game. And uh, the topic of this uh, podcast, we're talking about the Moldvay and uh, basic D- uh, Dungeons and Dragons. So when when you were playing, um, which version or what, what what were you playing mostly? Was it AD&D or was it uh, well, the various? Of- the original three booklets plus Greyhawk, the first supplement. Uh, and when AD&D came out, we switched to that because it sort of answered a lot of questions and had a lot more information. Because that was that was always the uh, challenge, I guess, in the uh, 70s, was trying to make sense conceptually of uh, the game and um, trying to decode uh, some of the rules. Yes, and that's why AD&D was much better. One of, one of the rules problems I remember is hold person. From the description in the booklets, we thought it was like a, a charm person for more than one person. 
And then when AD and, and we heard, no, 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 this just freezes people. And then when AD and D came out, it was made clear that it just freezes people, which was a lot less powerful than a charm. But there were lots of rules questions like that that AD and D answered. And of course, it, it presented a lot more. But you know, the, the original booklets were quite small, and the original DMG is very large, and the original player's handbook is quite large, and the monster manuals, you know, one after another are quite large. So that was much better. I never saw a reason to switch to, to D&D 2 because it seemed pretty much like one. The third edition, I did play and I did even ref, but I never cared for it particularly because it encouraged uncooperative attitudes. It was all one-man army game because of the simple thing that they limited, they expected the party to be four characters. I had always played with parties of eight characters. Six made me nervous because one of my lose laws is the survival of the party as a whole depends on the square of the number of members in the party. So party of eight, 64. Party of four, 16. What they did with third edition D&D is they had to make the individual characters able to work on their own. And that's where the one-man army stuff came from. And if you only have four characters, you can't assign somebody to be a bodyguard for the, the magic user, let alone set up a defensive line in front of them. You don't have enough people. And so it made for a quite different game. And I can remember particularly some people who played, they just did what they wanted and they didn't care. And so D&D lost its cooperative aspect. Well, by that time, I had given up playing games against people. I'd been very competitive and I decided to stop doing that. And of course, Dungeons and Dragons is the ideal cooperative game because you have a human controlled opposition that can make it more difficult than in a typical cooperative game, especially a tabletop game where you're just using cards to program the, the defense. Fourth edition, I always said it might be a good game, but it's not Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> but what it did do was restore that cooperative attitude big time because a lot of the characters or character classes had features that only helped other people in their party. And that was good. Fifth edition's Somebody described it as a cleaned up and updated version of first edition. And I think that's good. I think they did a really good job. The problem is by the time fifth edition came out, which I guess is now five years ago, we had been influenced immensely by computer games. Even when I was going to uh, college game clubs, I did a survey of a couple of those clubs. And it turned out they played video games more than tabletop games. And the video game zeitgeist is you can't die. You can't fail. Um, and so in fifth edition D&D, you've got ridiculous spells like Revivify, which I believe is a third level clerical spell where you can save people from death. And it's really hard to get killed. Now, you know, a GM can always kill people if he wants, but it's really hard to get killed in fifth edition. And that's the big difference with first edition AD&D because in AD&D, you were under the gun and it made a big difference in how you played the game. Fifth edition, I'm sure I would not mind, but uh, if I were going to GM it, I would ax a few of the rules. And another another odd rule that I learned uh, the other day from, from comments on my column in uh, Ian World, which I hadn't realized, it's really hard to get out of a fight in fifth edition once you get into it. It's kind of sticky. Whereas I'd played first edition, you could withdraw and then run away, and there was a good chance you could get away. Because one of the things that separates the good players from the poor players is knowing when to get out of there. 
or even better, knowing when not to get involved in the first place. And a lot of people, when they play D&D, they see the enemy, they attack, always, without much strategy or tactics involved. They just attack. You know, bumble open the door, charge in, blah, 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 blah. That's not the way I want to play the game. <laughs> but it's the way a lot of people want to play the game, kind of mindless. You know, they want to be fighters and go in and hack and chop. Well, okay, but that's not what I enjoy. And uh, we mentioned that you were involved in early White Dwarf. I just want to sh show you something here. This is uh, an ancient artifact here. I've got the uh, first edition of uh, A very White... noticeable cover. Yeah, it's the first ever edition of uh, White Dwarf. And you appear in it. Well, by that time, I was talking with him uh, with some frequency, going down to visit him. Ultimately, I did their first board game, Valley of the Four Winds. So I don't know what the timing was, but... I'd been writing articles, as I said, for Games Magazine, so it was natural to write articles for White Dwarf. And in this one, in this first edition, you're talking about the philosophy of D&D and D&D campaigns. Well, I find it interesting because uh, you're talking about the ancient and uh, continuing conundrum between whether the game versus the narrative and how to uh, balance the two and which one has more credibility. And to this day, that's still a big discussion. And it always will be because there's two ways to play the game. One is as a game and the other is as a storytelling machine. And again, because of the influence of video games, people are more accustomed to playing what they call a game where they can't actually lose. And the interest is in finding out what the story is. When you play a video game, a single player video game, you play to beat the game. And when you beat the game, you found out what the story is. And there's only the one story sometimes. So at that point, you stop playing the game. In role-playing games, there's always more stories because somebody can make up more stories. But it's a vastly different way of playing. And I've always preferred the game method. But as time passes, we go from a situation where early on, all the players of Dungeons & Dragons essentially were war gamers. And now there aren't all that many war gamers left uh, anywhere. And Many of the people who play Dungeons & Dragons don't even play other games. They just play Dungeons & Dragons, and they're interested in the story. And that's fair enough, but if you try to mix those people together, you've got problems. Each side is not going to like the other side. And, and another way to express this is old school and new school. The old school people want to play a game where you have to earn what you get, and the new school people want to be rewarded for participation. They see a game as a way to have fun without any negative consequences. And so the, the difference is even stronger now than it was when I was writing articles in White Dwarf. Is it possible to have a combination of the two? Because obviously since then there have been game systems that have create mechanics that allow a balance of uh, story and your influence on the results in the game. Here's the fundamental. When you make up an adventure for a role-playing game, you have two extremes of choices. One is to set up an interesting situation and let the players write the story in effect. And that can be really interesting when you run different groups through the, at different times, you get different stories. So as a GM, it's kind of fascinating to watch how things are so different. Or the other extreme, you can figure out what the story is going to be and tell that story to the players and they go along with it. And there's everything in between, as I said. So there are you, the GM, are writing the story as opposed to the players writing the story. Well, I design board games. And in board games, generally, 
again, there's still both ends, but generally you're making a board game so that people can write their own story. And if you succeed, you'll get something like Britannia, which is my most well-known game. And I know people who've played it over 500 times. It's a four to five hour game. On the other end, you have what are essentially puzzles and you play a few times, you've figured out the puzzle and you're done. Uh, puzzles and stories are related. Stories are linear. They have to be something that the author can control if they're going to, the author's going to tell a story. And that means a puzzle where there's a solution and people have to follow the solution. Well, I don't like puzzles. I despise puzzles. They make <laughs> me feel stupid and they don't give me any good in return. So I don't want anything to do with puzzles in general. One of the other uh, themes of your writing in uh, White Dwarf that used to uh, cause discussion uh, with in, in our group was um, how you, and it goes back to what you were saying about the cooperative nature of the game, and it's avoiding that power creep of uh, characters and withholding, you know, part of the role of the DM is to withhold withhold things so that it can't be accelerated and that the, the characters stay hungry and uh, driven. And uh, you're, you're one of the first uh, guides to games mastering that, uh, dungeon mastering that I read was yours that I featured in uh, White Dwarf. And that was very much the theme of it. To me, the game breaks down when you get to about double figure levels. It breaks down because the offense is so powerful. If you get the drop on the other side, you, you pretty much got them. And I have discovered much more recently that people uh, examined World War II tank battles and found that whoever shot first usually won because the offense was pretty powerful. It's the same kind of idea that I remember when playing D&D, we would scout like crazy because we wanted to know what was going on and make a plan. And then like everybody over the wall flying because we had enough different flying devices and potions and so on, we could go over the wall and catch them by surprise. And we did not use the surprise rules because they're crazy bad for the persons who are surprised. Nonetheless, you get the drop on them and get the first shot and you're in really good shape. So I wanted people to stay at lower levels and, you know, you could play for 20 years and okay, you got the ninth level. On the other hand, you don't get dead very often, or at least you don't get permanently dead very often. And that seems to work better for the game because you haven't got to the, the areas where it doesn't work anymore. I, I've never played a role-playing game where you got up into that superhero kind of stuff where, you know, superheroes never die. Well, almost never. I'm talking about comic book superheroes. And you get the same kind of thing in Dungeons and & Dragons. And it makes, I think it makes the GM's job a lot more difficult because he's got to come up or he, she's got to come up with things that make it dangerous for those characters. It's just a lot more sensible to keep it all at a lower point. Though unfortunately, that's exactly the opposite of what people do in MMOs and, and, and Skyrim and so on, where you're going up levels like crazy. And those people tend to focus on the destination rather than the journey. To me, the journey was the adventuring. And sometimes somebody would go up a level and didn't even know it because they hadn't tallied up all their experience points that they had written down from various adventures, but they hadn't added them up. Oh, I'm a higher level because we weren't focused on gaining levels because it happened so seldom. We were focused on having a good time as an, an adventure. But the whole 21st century zeitgeist, you know, bucket lists and so on, things like that is, I wanna do all these things. And you tend to forget 
that you're supposed to enjoy doing all those things. You know, the focus on the destination is kind of odd because the destination of life is you die. Why focus on the destination? Focus on the journey. So I, I think that's what informed that point of view. I think uh, they got good value from you as well, Lou, in the uh, in White Dwarf, because you used to fill the letter pages um, with uh, responses uh, to your articles. You certainly got people um, discussing games and discussing the views that you had. I was and- much more competitive then. You know, nowadays, the, the, my motto is don't read the comments, or if you're going to read the comments, don't comment on the comments. Because <laughs> it's just not worth the time. But back then, I was willing to be combative and respond and so on. I think it's because um, those uh, articles that you produced and those views that you produced always had an authoritative tone. Well, I think that's what got Mark Miller, that for whatever reasons, when I write something, I try to be authoritative about it. Although even that, over the years, uh, my column in EN World, I try to back off because some of those people are really savages when they comment. That's that's one thing. It, they, it did have a polite tone in the letters page in White Dwarf. That's something that has changed over the last 40-odd years. Uh, people's uh, tone has, uh, has changed, hasn't it? Well, that's a general thing in the 21st century, isn't it? Let's not end on uh, such a, a sad note because it's... <laughs> it, it's been great. It's been great speaking to you, and uh, as I say, um, a personal pleasure because you provided uh, me and my friends so much entertainment uh, through the years through your articles in White Dwarf. So, yeah, thank you very much, Shirley. Thank you, Dirk. Open box. Welcome to the room of role playing rambling. I'm joined by Blythe. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. It's a fine autumn morning we don't normally do these things in the morning we we normally do them late at night with cupping a glass of beer but we're now actually cupping a cup of tea but i've got me fresh orange here as you know i like a glass of fresh orange i've had i've had a cup of tea two cups of tea and then i'm, I'm done I, I move on to the fresh orange of a weekend you see i'll just give the listeners a warning that uh, when you've had fresh orange juice you do make your lips smack together don't you when you you do that? Yeah, well, I like it. I like it. I just mean, maybe it's ill-advised when we're recording. I don't yeah. know. Maybe yeah. I should have stuck to tea. It's 11 o'clock. I've got my 11s. I've got my hobnobs out, and I'm ready to talk about basic D&D. Yeah. I've opened the box on this this morning, and there is a very distinct nostalgic resonance for a particular period mm. of time. It unlocks, yes. doesn't it, memories of a specific period of time when we played this. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I when I uh, got my old copies of it out, it's strange. I, this sounds odd. I think of all the games we've looked at, I, and we've talked about D&D before, but we focused on advanced D&D, so I didn't really look at basic much. Didn't, I don't think I looked at it. I felt strangely emotional reading it, because yeah. I, I think it's the, first, it's the first, it wasn't the first game we played. By the time I got it, we were, we were quite experienced, because you, you had RuneQuest, I'd run Traveller. I think I'd run Stormbringer. So it wasn't, for, for a lot of people, it, it's their first role-playing game, but it wasn't for us. And I think I bought it because it was a legal loophole in the Prime Directive, wasn't it? With Simon had advanced D&D, so we weren't allowed to buy that because of the Prime Directive. And I had a, had a light bulb moment where I thought, actually, basic D&D is perfectly legal. It's a different game. It's legal. I can buy it. And I did. And I think it's the first game I really enjoyed running. I would go as far as to say, Dirk, that basic D&D saved me as a role player. Because there was a point 
where I become a bit miffed with it because where I was running Traveller and I was running Traveller for you and Simon. And Simon didn't like Traveller. We've, we've talked about this before. He was difficult. He was difficult in Traveller. He liked Ringquest, didn't want to play Traveller. He was difficult. And I think there was a point where I was getting a bit fed up with role-playing. I was thought, this is hard work. It's just hard work. Why am I, you know, I want to run games, but I've got this awkward player. And I bought Basic D&D and we ran Basic D&D for other people, didn't we? And I really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed it. And I think it invigorated me running Basic D&D, running the modules, because it does some great modules for Basic and Expert D&D. And I do, I, I, reading it, I, I did feel like slightly emotional. I thought, oh, it's not me first, it's not me last, but maybe it's me everything. Who knows? Really? really? <laughs> yeah, because for that for that very reason that it, it made me, re- I really enjoyed running it. It was great to run it. You know, it, it has everything there. It's a great rule book. It's, it's got everything you need. It's well laid out. It's a great little game. When this was released, the intention was to go outside of the hobbyist market and reach out to um, school kids mm. and uh, develop a new audience for it. And when you see these uh, retrospective programmes, and we've said this before, you get the idea that somehow this was an endemic hobby, that everywhere you look, there were people uh, playing it. <laughs> and as we've said before, mm. That is just not the case. Um, you know, we could not find people to play with, and we spent a lot of this yes. time. Yeah. We'll call it um, PE, pre-edit, pre-edit time, uh, trying to recruit pre-edit people time. Yeah. who weren't Simon. Yes. Simon, who was um, peppering his games with microaggressions, trying to put us in our place. We yes. were trying to recruit people because he's at the grammar school. Yeah. Like, yeah. like like cult leader yeah, we of our time, we were trying to find people to uh, play with. Yes, and so let's let's uh, <laughs> let's pick out some memorable ones and what happened to them. So first of all, there was Stump, wasn't there? So Stump played uh, Gringo's Pawn Shop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he? yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah. And and he, he spent most of the time in bafflement, wasn't he? Uh, through, throughout that um, throughout that game, um, yeah. not quite sure what he was meant to do. We. It was the first game we played, and we put on the airs and graces as though we were established role players, um, not wanting yeah, to be guilty. Yeah, we did. We, pre- we pretended we knew what we were doing. We clearly didn't. No, we've turned that into a podcast, haven't we? And it, it was a big, it was a big lad, wasn't he? Uh, Stump, and uh, he filled your mm. bedroom. So there was like a practical consideration, thinking we can't yeah. have him come in every week because there's just not a room for three of us in your tiny it's just room. Not, there's just not the room. And, and, and is he yeah, away on his bike, uh, never to be seen again? We we knew, didn't we, after that session, that he wouldn't be playing with us. Yeah, and you often did with these people, where you would get one game and you, you knew, all oh, right, that's never going to happen again. Yeah. We've not convinced them. There's just a certain air about them and a the whole atmosphere on the game that there's no point during the game it clicked. And they thought, oh, I'm having a great time. This is wonderful, which is what we wanted. We wanted that moment where they would go, do you know what? I was a bit baffled for half an hour, but now this is the most fantastic thing in the world, which was kind of our reaction to role-playing games. Yeah. We wanted them to have the same reaction. <laughs> they never did. We called him Stump. It was a nickname that didn't have common currency. Uh, it was because he was off school for an intimate operation. So we jumped, came to our own conclusions, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the second... Uh, New recruit that is of note is Weepy William. I think he's an interesting, interesting case in point here. Interesting case in point because he did play D and D, didn't he? 
he played DD at school. Um, he was an old primary school friend of mine, and when I recontacted him, he he played it. So he wasn't he wasn't um, confused by the concept of a role playing game. But I think it's fair to say, Dirk, you managed to confuse him. <laughs> so he, he played DD, and we said, "Well, we're not going to play DD. We're going to play." It's got self sabotaged the whole thing, didn't we? We're we not going to yeah. play the game you know about. We're going to play something else. And at that time, I had just um, got Troll Pack, and I um, it, the encounter with the troll. His instinct, of course, being a D and D player, was to go forth and try and kill the troll. But you said no. Yes. Step back. No. No. Um, no. We can converse with this uh, troll. And, this is, uh, is RuneQuest. This, this is better is and more sophisticated. Yes. Yeah, and uh, you couldn't speak Dark Tongue. Therefore, um, we had to mime the uh, conversation if i'm if <laughs> yeah, i'm right yeah and mm-hmm. i went full on method in my approach to this uh, troll i was sure bought in a bit i don't mind admitting it now it's a, a long time ago <laughs> i thought i'd show off a bit well it was a bit like that wasn't it it was a bit like at the time we were sniffy about D and we thought oh well he played D, yeah we'll show you a proper role playing game we'll show you something really good yeah, yeah. and Confuse you to the point where you never came back for anything. <laughs> yeah. That's essentially what happened. We've actually found someone who's into role playing and managed to managed to make them never play with us again. The, the next uh, recruit was Simon Connor. Now, Simon Connor was a bit of a doppelganger. He looked yeah. a lot like me, so much so that his uh, mum took me home to his house from school, thinking I was. She did. She didn't. She didn't. She pick you up from primary school on a foggy day. Yeah, you grabbed your hand and dragged you. And you 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 looked up and said, "But halfway there, you said, you're not my mum. Where are we going?'" <laughs> yeah. Yeah. These well, days, there'd be there'd be a social services inquiry there, wouldn't there? And so we invited him to the first session of uh, Borderlands. Yeah, uh, and he pl- I think he played Warlock of Fire Firetop Mountain. So we thought we were onto something, um, but we yeah. knew that there was a an issue when he named his character Flash Con. Yes, um, yeah. I don't know whether it's because we didn't do enough to help him, but he just struggled, didn't he? He just struggled to get it. Well, uh, yeah, and uh, again, you've got that problem, haven't you, that someone who's played Warlock of Firetop Mountain is then confronted by um, a RuneQuest character sheet. And whilst the concept is very similar, uh, the, the mechanics are not the same at all, are they? You know. And again, I think we were, we were probably guilty of... At least it's two things, isn't it? There are there are people for whom it never clicks. They just don't like role playing games. It's, it's, it's we can't understand that, but there are people who don't like them out there. Um, but also, you, you have got that problem of we we kind of all probably overfaced people a little bit. We were like, it is you played we played fighting fantasy books. Oh right, ego, play this game. It's the same thing. Is is a RuneQuest character sheet with all these numbers and percentages on the hit locations and things. And probably looked at it and thought, "Oh my God, what's this? This isn't this isn't the fighting fantasy book. What they got me into here." And we were a bit, we were a bit kind of blasé, as if like, oh, "Well, isn't all this obvious? It's obvious what you do. Look, there you go, twenty five percent. Roll these two funny dice." And and two other people, it just wasn't. It just was not. It didn't click, did it? You know, it was probably yeah. overfacing, slightly overfacing for them. Yeah, the story ends well, doesn't it? Because we hit gold. It does with it does. Moggy. Yeah, Moggy. It's Moggy. We hit. Gold with Moggy. Moggy and basic D&D came to our rescue, didn't they? 
um, because he was he was a, a lad at school, wasn't he? And he was he showed an interest. He was kind of quite a close friend at school, wasn't he, of ours? And he showed an interest in playing. And I think at that point, I'd bought basic D&D. I'd seen the legal loophole, but, you know, legally bought D&D, basic D&D. And I said, well, I'll run, I'll run basic D&D. I've got one of these modules. I'll run that because it's, it's a straightforward game. And I think I think one of the reasons I, ch- I, I said that was because when I got basic D&D, it's a very, very good rule book. It's very well laid out and very clear. And, and that felt like, well, maybe this is a game somebody who's never played a role-playing game could play. And he did, and he loved it, didn't he? He, yeah. he absolutely loved it and got into it. And we played at lunchtime at school, didn't we? Yeah. For, for a year or so, really, every lunchtime. Yeah. And, you know, we, we've described the spaces uh, where we played. Um, that form room that we uh, played mm. in, it, it still has, I can still, I've got the sights and sounds and uh, smells of that area. Every <laughs> yeah, time I open yeah. this uh, this box, and that's why I say it's a very distinctive space and time. And um, playing those games with uh, Muggy at lunchtime was great, wasn't it? Yeah, so I think yeah. I think we brought miniatures and you used dungeon floor plans and we did it. Yeah, yeah. We did it Just like... to bring all that stuff in in my bag, yeah. 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 We did it like they do at the beginning of ET. It felt like that, didn't it? Um <laughs> Did, yeah, yeah, like we were doing it properly. And it was it was a joy. It was a joy for me, particularly, because it was nice to play it with someone who wanted to play it. Because as I say, you you always wanted to play it, but Simon never wanted to play the games I ran. But Moggy did. So I had I had to suddenly I had two players who were both into it, which which was great for me. It it really did kind of yeah. make me carry on with the hobby, really, because suddenly it was like, oh yeah. This is fun. This isn't like a torture of dealing with a difficult character. It, it's actually fun. The two people who are into it and want to play it. And it was it, it was um, funny and uh, intelligent, wasn't it? And uh, it, yeah. it was it, yeah. was his real name, Moggy. Uh, you might be surprised to learn he was actually called uh, John Morrissey. So uh, it was yeah. Morrissey before his time. He didn't have a gla- he didn't have a gladiola in his pocket. And uh, no, not you know, that Morrissey. Yeah, I love Nigel Farage <laughs> no. badge or whatever. Whatever, it's not whatever that he wears these days, yeah. <laughs> and the notable things about Moggy was he came from a very big family. And he did, didn't he? Yeah. He and his brothers would spend the evening terrorizing his next door neighbours, the Dooleys. That's right, they did, didn't they? The Dooleys, who were a rather naff pop band in the it was the kind of late seventies, early eighties. The Dooleys, they were like a family pop band. They were they were like a kind of substandard Nolans, if you can imagine such a thing. <laughs> if the if the Nolans aren't substandard in their own right. They were like a sub-substandard Nolans, weren't they? The Dooleys. But they did. They lived near his house. They lived house in a big house and he used to go over the wall, didn't they? Yeah. Mess about in the big garden. Yeah. And uh, when they were caught, they would shout, the, the Dooleys have no ghoulies, I think, was the... <laughs> yes. <laughs> was the thing. Which must have annoyed the Dooleys, because you think as, as kids, that the fact that Dooleys rhymes with ghoulies is just an open goal for anybody, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. For the, rest of, for the rest of your life, if you call Dooley... You know, gooly, dooly. That's it. So, in, in, in the in this classroom, it was the RE classroom, and in one corner would be the. the I suppose these days they call them like the Mean Girls, wouldn't they? They were in the corner. There was uh, yes, Tonka, yeah. Poggy, and Tina. I don't know why Tina didn't have a nickname, but all the rest of them did, didn't? They? I think because she was the toughest of the three, and no one dared give her a nickname, and exactly. she'd probably kick their head in. That, yeah. that was the thing, yeah. No, that was it. 
and there was uh harry harrison who all the he was like the dream boat wasn't he he was like uh he was a bit of a jock but he was also <laughs> sensitive because he did art you, you know you're making you're making a comprehensive in farmworth sound like high school musical <laughs> it wasn't and we were huddled we were huddled around our table looking at these miniatures playing the game and it it was distinct period of time but we covered a lot of ground didn't yeah. we we did a lot of the modules i remember playing through them we we did because we played we played every every lunchtime for like an hour we'd bring sandwiches so we just went straight there it was kind of weird privilege because we were fifth in the fifth form and the fifth form they, they sort of trusted you to you could be in school you could be in a classroom if you're doing something what they perceived as productive you could be in a classroom so we would go every every single lunchtime um so you're getting like five sessions a week in weren't you for an hour and we did we i did all the loads i did castle amber curse of zamathon the lost city yeah did, did loads of those kind of basic and expert D and D modules, yeah? yeah. And they're great. They are great modules. I think I think we did Isle of Dread as well. Actually, we've got. I've still got them. They got pencil marks in, which is a clue that these things were were played. Yeah, you know. So they were like. There's at least four big modules that we played. You know, possibly possibly one or two more. Why is it you think uh, this is the basis for so many games, and it keeps getting remade, doesn't it? Is it because of that nostalgic mm. resonance? I mean, obviously, there's a practical thing that uh, Wizards of the Coast released the uh, rules so that people could use them. But Yeah, that's the, the, part of it, I think. Yeah. You know, over the last five years, we've played so many different versions of the same thing. Why is it? I don't know. It's, it's, it's a bit of a mystery, isn't it? And I know what you mean. You almost think, if you don't like 5th edition D&D and you want to play old D&D, just, just play old D&D. Just, just get hold of old D and D. Don't, don't. Why are you rehashing it? Yeah, it's like a strange kind of fixation. I suppose it's. I don't know. Maybe it's partly nostalgia, partly nostalgia in that for a lot of people is their way into the hobby, isn't it? So D and D is for for so many people a way into the hobby. So maybe they have a nostalgic hankering to go back to. You know, they, they see modern interpretations of D and D. So third edition, fourth edition, fifth edition, and they're. Although they're similar, they are they are in many ways very very different games, and they just hanker after that nostalgic thing of, oh remember when remember when D and D was or remember when role playing was simple and fun and we were kids and maybe rehashing D and D is is a way round that. Although I must I must admit I, I do find the the retro clones are all are all slightly disappointing. Yeah. Because what they all do is they all introduce a few rule tweaks that you like, and you go, "Oh, that's I like that. That's a great rule tweak. That's that's good." But then they keep in other rules that you think, oh, "I've never liked that rule." You know, I never liked that one. Just, Why have they kept that one in? Why have they kept yeah. that one in? But but done something quite inventive with with this bit. Um, and I think that's why that old school essentials is so popular because it doesn't do that. It just presents you with basic D&D, just, just basic D&D. If you're going to play basic D&D, play basic D&D. If, if you don't like the rules of basic D&D, play something else. It is a mystery. I, I think it must be nostalgia. It's got to be, hasn't it? It's got to be a nostalgia yeah. for what Before people we... experienced in their youth. Before we go into the rules in a bit more depth, I just want to remember a bit, because when, when I looked at this, it reminded me of the time when we were playing and the head teacher came in. And I've been trying to avoid him. 
because he wanted me to play. <laughs> he wanted me to play Fagin in the school production of Oliver, and I didn't want to do it. And uh, he came in, interrupted our game, and didn't ask what we were doing. Did he? He just came over, called me in. Yeah, that's what we're doing, and I, I think it's interesting that what we were doing is playing the devil's game in the uh, religious studies teacher's <laughs> office, uh, classroom. Always struck me as funny. She's very liberal, wasn't she? He didn't care. But yeah, yeah, go on. Yeah. <laughs> He, he came over and he and the words he, see I didn't want to play it I, I didn't want to play Fagin I didn't want to take up the time because I knew that it'd eat into valuable role playing time if I was rehearsing mm. and doing that kind of thing so I was thinking you know what excuse could I use you know could I go down the you know well I don't like the anti semitic depiction of uh, that, that would have been your line would it at yeah, fourteen yeah <laughs> I, no I've, I've got issues with it you know I was quite right on it oh, yeah I, yeah. I, I think I went down the, I didn't want it to interfere with my academic studies because, you know, it's our last year at school. And these words were, I would give my right arm to play Fagin in this production. And whilst he was saying that all the time, I was trying to calculate, would that affect Fagin's ability to pick a pocket and trying to work it out in percentage <laughs> time? I... I don't think it would because he would just get mastery in his remaining arm, wouldn't he? Just be an offhand one. You get mastery, and also I suppose you could you could argue that people aren't expecting a one-armed man to pick the pocket, so he gets some bonuses for misdirection, you know, less of a threat. Misdirection, yeah, yeah. I'm on the lookout for pickpockets in the tavern. That one-armed fellow. Well, he's not. He's not going to be a pickpocket. He's only got one arm. He can only pick a pocket or one. <laughs> on that, let's. Uh, Come back to look at these rules. See you in a minute. Hello, I'm Ralph and I do a podcast called Fitplasm, and this is my first, last and everything for the Grognon Files. So, without further ado, the first game I played was Fighting Fantasy, the introductory role-playing game. And this was the book with an orange spine and back, and the illustrations by Duncan Smith. Um, there was a, a were person emerging from a D6 on the cover, and some of the interior art is just fantastic. But it wasn't the first game I owned, by the way. That was Traveller. And I also had the Mensa Basic D&D. And they're both great, but I didn't gel with either of them. And I didn't play them for some time. Now, for Traveller, what I wanted was Blake 7. And what I got was a game where all the fun and dangerous stuff happens in character generation. And then you get to play paying off a mortgage on a crap ship with no lasers. Hmm, rock and roll. And as for Basic, it's a good teaching game, but it is dry and bland. Um totally lacking any inspiration and lacking any guts in my view um and more to the point i don't think any game treats starting characters with as much content as dnd now you're not going to be robin of sherwood riding out solo to take on the baron de belem with six hit points and don't give me that zero to hero nonsense it's bollocks and the wizards of the coast know that that's why successive generations of D&D have made first level more survivable you know levels make sense if you have a planned trajectory for your character but in my view they they kill the game they're poison they make the game all about transactions and future expectations when you should be playing in the now and they do the opposite of what a what a role playing game should do they make the pcs conservative and risk averse uh, and when they should be, you know, passionate and brave. 
It's no way to motivate people to play a game by saying you're going to start off with a crap character. And I think that fighting fantasy is different because it comes from a different place. Now, we we talk about how some indie games come from improv, and that's why they're starkly different from those with a foot in wargaming. A D&D shape derives from wargaming, obviously, but fighting fantasy comes from the individual experience of being a hero in a novel, making decisions and taking risks. Now, granted, it is a bit simple. Dungeoneer or Advanced Fighting Fantasy remedied that later. But the basic book, the the introductory role-playing game, is a great book, and it makes it really easy to just pick up and play. We turned it to all sorts of duties, including exploring RuneQuest's Griffin Island. The book itself has two adventures inside, the Wishing Well and Shagrad's Hives of Peril. And the presentation, I really think, is outstanding. Exactly what you need when you're starting out. Each adventure puts a dungeon location on a new page with a miniature complete map. And more than half the locations have full page illustrations. And I guess the problem with fighting fantasy as a competitor to box RPGs was the, you know, the lack of support and the fact that they looked like children's books. And I've still got my original full size Out of the Pit and Titan, which are awesome. But as far as I know, that's all they did of the large format. Before I move on to my, my last, I just want to urge the listener to check out Troika from Melisonian Arts Council and Into the Odd by Chris McDowell, which are both, in my opinion, the spiritual successors to fighting fantasy. Of course, for Troika, that's by design. Also, Aryan games have revived the advanced fighting fantasy line. But moving on to the last game I played, it's Cthulhu Dark by Graham Walmsley. And that's even more minimalist than fighting fantasy, if that's possible. You, know, you have an occupation and you have an insight score. That's it. And when you roll dice, you roll d6 and count the highest result out of how many dice you roll. The number of dice you get is one human die if what you're trying to do is something anyone could attempt, one occupation die if the task falls within your occupation, and one insight die if you're willing to risk your mind. And in my view, this is all you'll ever need to run a Call of Cthulhu scenario. And I, I just did this. Uh, I ran Mr. Corbett from the original Mansions of Madness for 4th edition Cthulhu. Now, not only is it all you need, it actually fixes two perceived problems with Call of Cthulhu. Up to you to discuss how much these are problems. But first, you know, the, the, there's the failed library use role that stymies the investigation. It's not a real problem for a competent keeper, but it's still a problem that Trail of Cthulhu felt it needed to fix. So, in Cthulhu Dark, you almost never fail to investigate. When you roll, a 4 is a complete success, a 5 is a success plus, and a 6 gives you a success with a glimpse into the madness. But, a 1 to 3 still gives you something to work with, and you can always re-roll if you're willing to risk your sanity. And the second thing it does is invert Call of Cthulhu's sanity death spiral, where as your sanity goes down, you're more likely to fail a check. In Cthulhu Dark, it's the other way around. Your insight goes up faster when it's low and slows down when it's higher. And I can tell you the, the pacing of this actually works extremely well in the game. Now, mostly I like Cthulhu Dark because it encourages the conversation between players and Keeper to negotiate benefits. I think that conversation is at the heart of the games I like, and you'll find it in Over the Edge and White Hack, and in my Everything game, which is Jonathan Tweet's Everway. Which is a slightly odd choice because I've not actually played this game very much, but it's really influenced my design thinking with some notable bits which I'll go into now. 
So the first thing is the character sheet. It's got this big wheel, a wheel of four elements right in the middle. That's your, your character's four elements, the four things that they can do. And then it's got three spaces above for your character's three card fortune deck reading, which is you know, where they're going with their life. And this is good because without going too deep into psychology, we have a thing called working memory, which keeps track of typically seven plus or minus two things at any one time. Any more than that, and we basically have to switch our attention, which adds to sort of cognitive overhead. Now, I'm not saying that Evway is special because it hits this perfect number. You know, in numerological terms, it's the divine three crowning the elemental number four. But the reason it's good is related to why character sheets that are just long lists are a problem. Because there, you've not only got the extra brain overhead in passing the list, you're also inclined to see it as a hierarchy and pay more attention to the stuff at the top. And on a more general level, you don't have to know anything outside the character sheet to get a complete idea of who your character is and what they need to do. And granted, they do have powers, but there's no real power levels uh, beyond the magical schools that you design yourself, which is a feature I like, but I think it's a bit half-cooked. In fact, you know, the magic system is full of good intentions, but it kind of reads better than it plays. Um, unfortunately, there was never a second edition to fix that. Other good things? Well, the, the Fortune deck is like 36 major arcana custom-made for this game. But as well as being an on-the-table artifact, it's also part of the in-game mythology where every realm has its own version of the Fortune deck, tweaked slightly to represent their own local situation, usually expressed as a struggle between two concepts like um, love and loyalty. Um, so... That's interesting because it connects the thing that the players are interacting with and touching on the table with the game world. The last thing I want to mention about it is the three ways that you have to resolve things. There's karma, which is whoever has the strongest stat wins. There's drama, where you resolve according to what's fictionally interesting. And there's fortune, where you draw a card from the fortune deck. Now, RPG theorists picked this up and ran with it, spawning um, GDS and GNS and the creative agenda thing in the forge. And, and I think, quite frankly, it went a bit too far. But as a way of looking at how you resolve things, it's pretty good. So I'm going to leave it there. Thanks very much for listening, and thanks to Dirk for the airtime. And if you want to talk, I'm on Twitter as at Flictoplasm, and the website is www.flictoplasm.net. Take it easy. Just gladly, rules! Welcome back to the room of role-playing rambling. What we're going to do now is look in a bit more detail at the rules for the basic D&D, and we're looking at the Moldvay version, aren't we? That's the version you had. Yeah. Well, I've got both, but they're not, I don't think they've, really much different at all i've got the moldvay version and i've also got the mincer version as well um but the mincer version just just is is really the same rules but it, it just looks re repackaged and different typeface and different layouts and that kind of thing so they are they seem essentially the same game i think so you know that, what that was our experience that was our experience of of basic and expert D because other people's experience does differ this is one of the problems in it when people are talking about it. There's, there's different, slightly different versions all over the place. Well, that is our our kind of red red box, blue box kind of experience. That's how it's sometimes described, isn't it? Yeah. Red book and blue book, you know, red book for basic and blue book for, for expert. Yeah. 
Okay, so the format is we look at uh, three highlights and uh, one thing mm -hmm. that it doesn't do so well. So let's um, start off with your, your, your first highlight. What's your first highlight? As a broad point, it, it is a very good, well-laid-out rule book, and that you know is to its credit. But I think the one of the rule highlights, and I, I don't think at the time I found this a bit of a, Ooh, a bit of a strange one. When I when I got it, I thought that's a bit of an odd way to do things. But actually now, I think it is a fantastic way to do things. Races as classes. So one of the big, big ways, the basic, all it differs from advanced D&D, is that races operate as classes. So if you're an elf, you're an elf. You're not an elf fighter or an elf wizard or an elf druid. You're, a, you're an elf. Uh, and I think you and Moggy, uh, I think you played an elf, didn't you? Because elves can use bit of armour and weapons and they get some spells and I think Moggy played a dwarf and dwarves operate like fighters but it does that it does that of you you aren't in advanced DD you play an elf but then you go all oh, right is it going to be elf wizard or is it going to be an elf thief well in in basic and expert you're just an elf with your own experience table and your own special abilities what's nice about that is it makes the game far more playable because it means for example that a thief in basic D&D, is a thief. A thief is a thief, is a human character. In advanced D&D, you always get the problem of why would you be a human thief because humans can't see in the dark and all the other races can see in the dark, so there's no point being a human thief. But in basic D&D, you've got to be a human to be a thief because that's all you can, that's the only way you can do it. You can be a halfling, and a halfling class has some thiefy, sneaky kind of abilities, but he's not a thief. Do you see what I mean? And I think it's a nice way of better, a better, it's a slicker way of dealing with it. And it kind of exemplifies the whole game, really, that the whole game is well thought out and better considered and clearer. Because you get that thing. I, I remember having these discussions with Simon. You know, I want to be an elf fighter. Oh, but you can only go up to fourth level of, or sixth level if you're an elf fighter. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll ignore that rule. But if we ignore it, that means you're more powerful because you're more powerful than a human who's got anything. Oh, my God. But in basic, it's simple, isn't it? You're an elf. That's what you are. And that brings its own benefits and its own pitfalls. But you're not an elf fighter. You're not an elf wizard. You're not an elf cleric. You're just an elf. That's what you are. And it's a, it's a very neat way of doing it. So, so remind me, how many classes are there? Well, in basic, yeah, you've got fighter, magic, user, thief, cleric, and then you've got elf, dwarf, and halfling. But I tell you what is is interesting. This is what made me think about how well the classes work in basic D and D compared to advanced. Old school essentials as a supplement where it converts all those advanced D and D character classes like paladins and druids and bards and illusionists into basic format. And do you know what? They all work better. They all work better in basic, better, easier to, to understand and far better balanced than they are in advanced D&D. And I, I think that's that's what made me think about this this thing of races and classes. You read the old school essentials supplement and you think, oh, yeah, actually, the paladin, yeah, that, that makes just works far better in basic. Once you convert them across, the game is far better from that perspective. Yeah, in playing that game, it felt like uh, the Bard class had a bit more to it than I remember from Advanced D&D. I think, I think that's that's a real plus. And I say at the time, I think we were a little bit, not sniffy about it, but we, I remember thinking it was a bit of an odd way of doing things. But now, on reflection, I think it's a better way of doing things. And it worked for us when we were playing with Moggy because it allowed you to be an elf. So you had a bit of magic because there was only two players. You had a bit of magic 
but you also had um, a bit of fightiness to you, which was which was useful. I think I always had uh, difficulty with uh, classes full stop because we played RuneQuest for so long that I found it uh, restrictive. And you know that the fact that you yeah. could only do certain things because it was determined by your class, rather than being, you know, a generic person in this world who could attempt to have a go at anything. But then again, um, what's you're right. The attitude of the rule book is far more, um, it's far looser in some respects. Although it's clearer, it cuts out some of the crap that's in advanced D and D, and it, it's a much slicker system that perhaps enables you to do more outside your character class anyway. And I think it does in places actively encourage you to be more imaginative about it. Whereas advanced D&D felt like, I don't know, big rule book that was telling you how to do it, and that's that. So what was your second mm. highlight? Well, my other, my other highlight, and again, I think this exemplifies a, a thing that runs throughout basically D&D, is the stat mods for your statistics. Because it gives you, once you get, you roll a 13 for strength, and you're immediately getting plus one to hit and plus one to damage and that kind of thing. You don't need to roll ridiculously high statistics to get bonuses. Whereas, of course, in advanced D&D, you do, don't you? It's got that stupid super strength rule. And, you know, I don't I don't think you get extra hit points until you get a constitution of something like 15 or something silly like that, which are quite high, high numbers to roll, aren't they? The, the bar, if you like, for getting modifications is quite low. There's a logic to it. You know, once you get a 13, if you get a stat of 13, that's above average, isn't it? And you get a bonus for that. And then as you go up, you get more bonuses. What what it's trying to do is get rid of that, I think, trying to reduce or get rid of that power gamer thing. Because you don't need massive statistical scores to get some benefits, if you see what I mean. Kind of throughout the game, the whole game is a bit more powered down than advanced D&D. It's, you know, fighters only get a D8 hit points rather than D10. You know, thieves get D4. It's powered down, but at the same time, it's you know it needs to have seventeens and eighteens to get bonuses, you know. And I think that's a nice thing about it. I think I always liked about it that it's not pushing you down. Advanced D and D is always pushing down the road of come on, I need an eighteen in something. You know, we've always said this about D and D, haven't we? You know, does it create power gamers or does it attract power gamers? Never quite sure. But I think basic does ease you away from that slightly, yeah. and and the stat mods are an example. There are other examples, but they're a very fine example of them saying, you know, you, you have a if you have a character with 13 in every stat, that's a really good character because he's getting a plus on everything. Whereas in advanced D&D, a character with 13 on everything, they're not that good. And uh, having played uh, some of the retro clones, it doesn't you don't feel very power, powered up, do you? You feel no. Um, you know, you feel like you feel that vulnerability, but not on, not only vulnerabilities that you have to be resourceful with what you've got because you've not really got a lot of spells to play with, and you've yeah. not got features of your class. So I've I've always found that it it does, as Lou Pulsifer says, it encourages that style of play that encourages cooperation, that mm. encourages you to use the abilities you've got in tandem with other people rather than having a show-off display of your feats and uh, you thinking how you're going to impact the game with your characters and what your character can do rather than what you can do as collectively. Yeah, it is. It is like, like it presents it as a team game. And I think in a way the, ne- the next rule uh, is connected to that as well. Okay, and what's that? The next rule that I like about it, and again, I think when we played it back in the day, I completely ignored this, but 
But when we played OSE and used it, I thought it was quite a, an interesting element of the game. It's the turn order. It, unlike a lot of games, actually what basic D&D does, and advanced D&D does it as well, but basic D&D strips it out a little bit more. Uh, it has a turn order where you roll initiative for your side, and then there's, a, there's an order of events. If you win initiative, there's an order of events, which is kind of like, I think it's movement, and then missile combat, then magic, then melee combat. So rather than saying, okay, you've won initiative, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? What do you want to do? It actually goes right. You've won initiative. Does anyone want to move? Is anyone going to fire a missile? Right, now it's time for magic spells. Now it's time for hitting things with swords. And whilst that doesn't seem a big deal, what you realise is it it alters the dynamic of the game. It gives the game a certain tactical dynamic and it introduces that element of team play, doesn't it? Because the guys with the bows are going to go first. So what are they going to do that's going to advantage you? And then the the magic user is going to cast his spell. And then you think, right, so he's going to cast his spell and then you're going to hit things with swords. So it, it introduces, I think, the idea of a cooperative mm. game because you're, what you do is going to take place at a particular point in the round. It does feel, I mean, it does feel wargamey. It does feel wargamey, but then, of course, that, that's where its roots are. Um, and uh, I suppose in a lot of the D&D, there's no, there's no real logic as to why missiles come before magic, comes before melee. Well, why, why? I don't know. But you could probably come up with some argument. But it, it does give you a feeling of there's a nice logic to it and it creates a sense of teamwork. Yeah, it certainly did. Because when we it's not played. all happening at the same time. Yeah. When we played it recently, it certainly did that, en- encouraging that turn order. Um, it, it made mm. sure that everybody... As we said, you know, your particular class, you've got limited resources. You've got the opportunity to use them at the most appropriate time to the best effect. And, and also you've got that thing of spells being interrupted by arrows and things, which makes the party want to protect the magic user. So you've got all that going on. And that turn order does exist in, in advanced D&D, but uh, I think in advanced D&D, missiles and magic are at the same time. I think splitting them out a little bit is, is a, it's not much of a thing. It is more interesting. What about um, something that it doesn't do so well? I suppose by in this bugbear with with D&D was always the saving throws. I was never quite convinced as to why, you know, a first-level magic user's saving throw against poison was this or that. Why? Why are these strange numbers? Who picked these numbers? And why? You know, all right, dwarf against poison. It's got a better saving throw than a human. All right, yeah, dwarves are a bit notoriously tough in that, that regard. But I don't know, you know, I don't know why... Uh, Elves against death ray or poison, 12, right? First level elf, 12. Fighters, 12, okay. Magic users, 13. Why? Thieves, 13. Why? Why? Clerics, 11. Why? Why is it 11 for a cleric? You're like yes. God on the side. You could, you could say God's on the side, but, but some of the other saving throws are, are worse. Paralysis or turn to stone for a cleric, 14. Elves, 13. Thieves 13. So thieves better at resisting paralysis than a cleric. Why? That never makes sense. I think you've got to go with it. If you're playing the game, I think you've got to go with it. Because this is what I mean about some of the retro clones tweaking those kind of things. They do tweak it a bit, but then there's other things in there that are not, not quite satisfactory. But I suppose I think you've got to run with it. If you're playing basic D&D, that, that's it. That's the game. Live, live with it. But it always 
always makes me scratch my head. Always did. Always does. Why? Why do you pick these numbers? I've never had an explanation. Right in, listeners. With a, why? Why are these numbers the way they are? One of the things I I've always admired about uh, basic D and D, and what I was slightly envious about, is the monsters and how those NPCs can be developed on the fly. And maybe this gives us some reason why it's still got a, an appeal um, for people, because obviously yeah. coming from a RuneQuest background and basic role-playing background, you know, it's quite a task to generate monsters. Yeah. You know, you can't have a, you know, a, a worm suddenly appear out of a cave. You've got to find a stat block from somewhere. You'd have to reach. Yeah, the hit locations and all that. Yeah, and I remember that back in the day. You you always had that problem of you, it was such an effort for you to create NPCs and monsters because you had to go through all the rigmarole of hit locations and all those kind of things. Yeah, and yeah. and it's it's the best story in here that it does bring. But I know that some of these are replicated from the monster manual, but just the way that they're presented here, mm. I, I really enjoy. Even stuff like the rubber fly. The other one that I always think of is the carrying crawler. And, uh, you mm. know, as soon as you see those names and uh, the descriptions, they take you right back there, don't they? And I think that's uh, that's an appeal. Yeah. I, I think you're right. And I, th- I think that's that's an interesting point in terms of its, its enduring appeal uh, of D&D is I suppose there's a feeling, because it's got so many monsters, there is that sense of it's a catch-all fantasy game that, you know, a lot of a lot of fantasy role playing games will shoehorn you into a particular style of play or a particular setting, won't they? Um, whereas I think D and D has that appeal of you can you kind of feel you can almost do anything with it, maybe. Partic- particularly more basic D and D because it's a bit more powered down. You feel like you can do everything with it, so you can have reasonably powerful characters going into a dungeon fighting monsters but you can also have a, a city setting where you know they're not too powerful they're not you know unlike say fifth edition where people have all these feats at very low levels which seems ridiculous they don't, don't feel like a superhero game it feels like a fantasy game and because it's got so many monsters and so many options you can do anything with it you can take it and do what you want with it so you can ignore some of the monsters and just have certain ones in your world but you've got everything at your fingertips. Whereas some fantasy games, that's not necessarily the case. They have certain limitations and certain styles and, and that kind of thing. That uh, Sometimes that's a good thing, but sometimes it can be restrictive, whereas D&D doesn't, doesn't quite have those restrictions, oddly. If you think that Advanced Dungeons & Dragons had a mm. big tome that was the Dungeon Master's Guide, in here, Part 8 has got much more coherent and much more beneficial assistance to uh, new uh, DMs than anything else. I think yeah. it's one of the best, you know, because what does it give you? It gives you, it, it talks you through how to create a scenario. It gives you 10 sample ideas for you to pick from, escaping from enemies, uh, using a magic portal, all these little things to get you your mind working it then t- yeah. it helps you through how to populate it think about where you're going to set it try and work out the monsters where the monsters fit into it and the npcs but more importantly i think is just the general advice under the heading uh, dungeon mastering is a fine art because i think this is the key to why <laughs> osr and all those retro clones 
uh, are so successful and so uh, enduring because it, 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 this is the core. These are some core principles of how to run a game and not being beholden to the rules in the same way that a D&D um, strapped you to particular things yeah. and that there'll be a rule there'll be a rule in here somewhere to resolve this what this says is like we did in uh, RuneQuest work out a percentage and roll that if there's no rules to cover it just yeah work out eight chances of doing it always give your players a chance yeah. even though ridiculous roll, it roll, under the, roll under a relevant stat and do it like that yeah something like that yeah but that's, yeah, it right. that's but it actually says it actually says use a percentile dice. If, it, if you get down to it, yeah. it, it's a D20 game. But his first uh, advice, if it's not in the rules, just use a percentile dice. That'll resolve it. And it's an odd, it's an odd little game, isn't it, mate? Because because uh, like those modules, I've got some advanced D&D modules and I've got some basic D&D modules. And I would say the basic D&D modules are far, far superior to the advanced D&D one. And it's a little bit, you've got to think like all the, all the clever, all the clever asses went off to do AD&D because they thought, oh, it's advanced and we're all superior. And they ignored basic D&D. And whilst they ignored it, perhaps far cleverer people got involved with basic D&D and turned it into a far better game with far better modules. That I, you think it's kind of under the radar almost, isn't it? That, you know, everyone, everyone's eyes on advanced D&D because, as you have said many times, because it's called advanced, everyone thinks it must be better. must be better. must be better. It's not. It's not. There you go. A de- definitive answer. Advanced D&D, back in the 80s, is not as good as basic D&D. Basic D&D is better. That's it. You know, I think we've said this. We said this about Tunnels and Trolls, didn't we? That Tunnels and Trolls is a really good little game, but people were dismissive of it. And basic D&D is the same. You know, people were dismissive of it. You know, but it is it is a good game. It is better than advanced D&D and probably better than a lot of games around at the time, other games around at the time, you know. Yeah. It's great. It's a great game. So it's taken 60-odd podcasts and uh, 43 episodes to realise that this is your everything. <laughs> there you go. It's been worth it then, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Well, would I say it's been? Maybe it is. Yeah, maybe it is. Yeah, maybe it is. I do. I do have a nostalgia for it, and I, I do think at the time I was getting fed up of, of running travel, and I was getting fed up of running games for Simon. And he's probably not just basically in days. He's probably the fact that a difficult player wasn't at the table. So is that? But that that experience of the difficult player not being there and bringing a player who was really into it happens to coincide with me running basic D&D, you know. Yeah. So, therefore, whether whether you like it or not, I suppose there is that nostalgia for it, that I have, that affection for it, that I have. Well, thanks for that, Blythe. See you later. See ya. There's more from Lupus for next time, including a discussion about the Necromancer class in White Dwarf, the Valley of the Four Winds, and the development of his classic game, Britannia, which has recently been released in a new edition. Also next time sees the return of Daily Dwarf, who's written a great essay that I'll read about the Holmes edition of D&D. Thanks to Ralph from Fictoplasm Podcast for his contribution to the episode. He provided a great counterpoint to some of the other opinions expressed in the episode from Blythe and Lou and to be honest his thinking is probably close to mine when it comes to D&D and OSR games in general. Come on we all want to be Robin of Sherwood rather than the Norman Mook falling over the battlements after a single blow. Now don't get me wrong 
I've had some great fun playing in OSR games, and recently blithely ran the Isle of Dread for the Patreon monthly one-shot club using old-school essentials, and that was really atmospheric, and the spirit of adventure that we enjoyed back in the day was recreated. But I always come away feeling that there's something missing. There's a gap. There's not quite enough in D&D for me. Perhaps we'll explore that further in the second part. I've recently appeared on the Fictoplasm podcast talking about Hawkmoon. Ralph currently is engaged in a project where he's reading through the Millennium Editions of the Moorcock Eternal Champion series. We go through the synopsis of the novels, pick out our favourite scenes and discuss my Eternal Champion creation, Jonas Cardiac, a bureaucrat and shock TV presenter in the Multiverse Simulacra. I've put a link in the show notes. At this point of the year, I'd normally be getting excited about heading to Manchester for the annual meetup, Grog Meet, but pathogens have conspired against us, so instead we're bringing the event to your armchairs. If you're listening to this in the autumn of 2020, then please do go and register to play at Grog Meet-ish 2020. There's still places available on the games on the 14th, and you can participate in the pub quiz on the 12th of November. On Sunday morning of the 15th, you can see a live Zoom panel with me, Gaz from What Would the Smart Party Do podcast, and Paul Fricker from the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, as we do the Thunder Phase. If you're sitting there and thinking, I'd like to participate, but I feel a bit trepidatious, that's understandable. But make this year the year that you do this and get involved because it's a very friendly chance to take part in an online convention. Look out for the deals in the virtual trade hall over the weekend too from our friends at Fanboy 3, Funnyside Games, Bonami Games, D101 Games, Fenris Games and All Rolled Up. The Grogzine is going to be delayed as we're giving some more time for another Russ Nicholson masterpiece on the cover. It might be delayed until next year, but then again, isn't everything? All of these additional projects are made possible from the tips that are tossed into the beret every month by patrons. We're very grateful that people keep listening, especially when there's so many demands on the attention economy, as we've got to call it now. But it encourages when you support us with a monthly contribution. It ensures that we continue these bobbins against the slings and arrows of daily life. Thank you. Once again, there have been some comings and goings from the patron, but we'd like to thank and welcome the new members of the campaign, as well as those who continue to support us. Much thanks to Justin Hill, Steve Wallace, Thaddeus G. Moore and Jeremy Gilbert, who have a comfy armchair to adventure in and a fancy poof to put their feet on. When people join at the sofa so good level, and above, I'd like to give them a virtual gift from the game under discussion. I do like how basic D&D rules help you build an adventure from the ground up by taking the new Dungeon Master through the stages of the process. I also love the monsters in D&D. So to say thank you to these people, I'm going to roll them a monster on the Wandering Monster table. Okay, uh, Gray Morel, he gets a six, a goblin. Chris Revy, he gets a ten. A kobold. Dale Murchie comes across a... Two, a bandit. Keith Mantle, he gets... An 11 and startles a wizard. There's been an increase by Martin Glassborough and he gets... 
15. It's a snake, comma, cobra. Why did it have to be snakes? And Mark, did you know? 18. He's hit by a sturge. Thank you very much to each of you. At the next level, you get a little contour rug around the feet of the chair, and I'm going to roll on a higher level table. So thank you to uh, Simon Hatch. Before he encounters an elf. Uh, next is Neil Burton. If you see the patron webzine this month, you'll have seen a illustration by Neil imagining our time at Newton Willows and the Nightmare LARP. He gets 13 a pixie as a follower. I also want to give a special mention to Asaka So, who's adjusted his high back chair. I miss playing with Asaka So. Hopefully I'll get into one of his games in 2021. Until then, he's a 10, a living statue, comma, crystal. It's a gift for you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this first part and I look forward to seeing you next time for part two. Adios, amigos. <laughs> Why should we break our backs? Stupidly paying tax Better get some untaxed income Better pick a pocket or two You've got to pick a pocket or two Boys, you've got to pick a pocket or two Why should we all break our backs? Let's pick a pocket or two Who says crime doesn't pay?